0: Sentence. Once again, it is I, Eden Coopermintz, and I am going to be doing another solo episode. So, usually when Langdon and I are doing an episode, we start it with, you know, a little bit of news, a little bit of um, topical subjects, or as I like to think of it, just a peek into the collapse that we are all experiencing. And I think. This time around, there is so much to choose from, and that's kind of, you know, I'm not I'm not an, an accelerationist because I'm not 16. Sorry, accelerationists, if you're listening, but there definitely is a feeling in the air of a sort of acceleration. Um, just the the wealth, the poisoned wealth of um, items I could choose to speak about here. Um, is just testament to how things are getting worse and if you're hoping for you know a number changing like 2020 into 21 to fix things then i have bad news for you um 2020 is the best year for the next i'd say three or four decades just like 2019 was before it and so on like this is all we're going downhill from here but you don't need me to tell you that like If you spend even five minutes online or reading about anything like politics and climate change and the economy and gender rights and global politics and what have you, you can pretty much um, deduce that for yourself. What I want to be able to give you, and one of the reasons I'm even doing this podcast, is what do I do with all of this? Not what can I do to stop it? Not even what can I do to change it? There are actually pretty good answers. Not to the first one. I don't think there's stopping a lot of the things that we are now experiencing. And in general, I think the people don't, they prefer not to think about these issues as something that take, you know, years to change. You don't just, or stop, sorry. You don't just start stopping. That's an awkward turn of phrase, but whatever. You don't just start to stop um, these big things on a dime. And change is also something that a lot of other people can tell you um, how to do off the top of my head. You can read Lenin, you can read um, Senkara, you can read Castro and Mao and all these great um, thinkers. But I think there's a, um, a lack of resources and, and writing and talking about how to cope how to deal with all of this and i think for me the the main um, idea that has kind of helped me in the last few years to to cope with what we're going through is the idea of no exit um, and this idea comes to us from Sartre, right um, in a novel that he wrote in 1944 called No Exit. You heard me typing because I'm cheating. I looked it up on Wikipedia, quote-unquote cheating. By the way, this academic notion of you know, just remembering things and remembering how things are called is toxic, and you shouldn't hold it. It's fine to look up stuff. Um, if you've never read this play, it's actually pretty good. I think a lot of Sartre's writing is a bit overrated, but this one is actually pretty good. N- not as a philosopher. He's a great philosopher, but he wasn't... A great novelist I think um, but this play is actually pretty good and, and in this play um, three souls damned souls are brought to hell and locked inside the same room by someone who is like clearly the devil or some sort of demon um, and they'll they represent all sorts of like people in society some of them are pacifists some of them are sort of revolutionaries or criminals and the play revolves around them, um, you know, looking at the door, always, you know, asking themselves whether they should escape, whether they should leave, whether it's better on the outside than on the inside. Um, and and the whole play is around this idea of the option, right? The torment of the option. And that kind of, you know, gels with Sartre's... Um, General theory of existentialism and this idea of abandonment on, and the anxiety that comes to humans because of the option to be better, because of this agonizing question. You know, in one, in um, Existentialism is Humanism, there's this, um, I think it's in that book, there's this teenager who comes to his priest and asks, Should I go to the war or should I not go to the war? And Sartre says that the only answer is whatever you choose, you will still be alone. You will still be a person that is abandoned to your perceptions and to your limitations, whether you go to the wall or don't go to the wall. And the only question is, what is authentic? Um, which is a term and idea that I don't really like, but that starts like, way out, like look within yourself and build this authentic self and then act according to it, and that is the only thing that can be good. But rolling this back into no exit... I think it's a really powerful idea for our times. Listen, as individuals, there's not much that you can do. Of course, you can organize and you can become bigger than yourself and bigger than just an individual. Um, but as that individual that still needs to wake up in the morning and you know earn a living so they don't starve and love your family and just in general cope, um, there's, not, there's not much you can do. But what you can do is not exit. What you can do is not buy into the allure of the door, the alternative, right? And we all exit in many different and diverse ways in our day-to-day. We exit when we hear a racist joke in the workplace or in our social circles and we choose to say nothing, right? We exit that situation. We just look away and wait for it to um, end. We exit when we are... Um, exposed to horrors and we choose to close the tab or read something different. Now I'm not saying you should like flagellate yourself with doom scrolling every day. That is not, that's sort of an exit in and of itself. But we should attempt, especially those amongst us who are more privileged, we should attempt to at least, the least we can do is to look directly at the problem and not exit. To, to engage with it in a meaningful way. Which, of course, Sartre would say is, you know, being true to our authentic self, but screw that guy. I, I I don't think those terms are useful, but if they work for you, then go ahead. Um, so why why am I making this lengthy um, intro about existentialism and, and no exit? Well, I, because I think the item, the main item that I want to talk about with today's news, um, well, this week's news, not really today, and also to tie it into the novel that I want to talk about, is climate change, and specifically, you know, the west coast of the United States being on fucking fire. Not fires here and there, but, like, the entire thing is on fire. It's like, 2018 was supposed to be this catastrophic freak year, but it's two years later and we've already exceeded it, right? Like, the fires burning now are much worse than the fires in 2018. Um, and you remember that like Australia caught on fire and the Arctic has been burning for a few months now as is Siberia and I think with climate change where there is so little that we can do even even less than all the other issues that you might think about this idea of not exiting is even more important because you can you can be made to feel so powerless so ineffectual in the face of these cycles and processes which You know, yeah, sure, I drive a car, and when I turn the key, I am somehow inadvertently um, contributing to climate change, but the idea of climate change itself is so far removed for me that it is sometimes, or most times, irrelevant. Of course, I'm I'm drawing on, like, a whole dearth of of writers here, chief amongst them, the ever-so-slightly-problematic Timothy Morton, who writes about this in his Dark Ecology, like this idea of communicating with this hyper object there's your buzzword for today um, this hyper object that is climate change and um, instead of being um, you know powerless and, and and ineffectual in the face of these objects one thing that we can do is attempt to engage with them and there's many ways to do that and one of the ways to do that is full fiction right in full literature because Literature, well, language in general, but specifically literature and maybe even more poetry, their job is to articulate that which is hard to articulate with everyday words, right? You don't need literature and you don't need poetry to tell you what it feels like to walk down the street. But to tell you what it feels like to walk down the street and at the same time think about the world coming to an end or at the same time having a personal drama or remembering something or finding a door to a magical kingdom behind the local supermarket. Those are things that literature and poetry can articulate. And when they articulate it and when we consume it, that is the literature or the poem that we are reading, it is a way for us to engage with these ideas. And sure, you might say, oh, that's all armchair philosophy, whatever. You sit at home and you read the book and you think you're doing something uh, about climate change. And you're right, it is, it is armchair, but what is what is more for us to do? Yeah, we can you know, recycle and organize and join unions and protest and do whatever, but at the end of the day, that is a speck in the ocean. Um, so I feel like what we can do to supplement and augment and maybe even replace in some cases where we are completely unable to act um, is at least engage with these ideas. So last episode that I did that was a solo episode, I told you that I usually do too much theory. So there you go, 11 minutes in and we're still doing theory. So what are we here to talk about? What is this work that I want you to engage with or through it to engage with um, climate change and the environment and nature in general? Um, so I wanna talk about Andrew Krivik's The Bell. Andrew Krivik is an American novelist It's quite interesting, his debut novel, The Sojourn, released in 2011, and it was nominated for the National Book Award for Fiction, so that's pretty uh, prestigious, Um, and also very lauded by critics and all the right people, Um, but he also wrote a memoir about his time as a Jesuit, um, which sounds like more something that I read in a history book than a person who is actually alive. Um, the book is called A Long Retreat in Search of a Religious Life, which he published in 2008. I, I haven't read it, but it sounds fascinating. And more recently, he published The Bell. Um, and The Bell is different than his other books because, well, it's not science fiction, but it definitely is speculative in a few ways. First of all, it takes place in the future, Um where exactly in the future, or when exactly in the future, it is not specified. Um, both the location and the timeline remain a mystery, but I think it is pretty safe to assume as far as um, location that it happens on um, the east coast of the United States. Like the sun sets in in the sea in the west, so that that already locates you geographically. Um, and as far as chronology goes, well, the story tells, the book, sorry, tells the story of the last to humans on the planet so i don't know how far you want to um extrapolate that but there is also hints to a city that is already like almost buried you can only see the foundations and there's moss over it so it's fair to say that it's not like 10 years or 20 years into the future but but longer than that and um before we we dive into the story itself and what it has to do with climate change and so on i want to talk about the writing style So the writing style for the bear is reminiscent of writers like Ursula Le Guin um, or people of that tradition in the sense that the language is very, very simple. It's very simple and it's very sparse. Everything is um, described in a very utilitarian way. There aren't many, you know, Tolkien-esque flights of landscape description or even, you know, like um, Proustian inner dialogues you know these long mental explorations of whatever um, it is just a very sparse and stripped down style to tell this story like instead of saying the person you know walked speedily towards the ancient forest as the as the trees were waving in the wind it would be like the man went to the forest right Um, and that this style is important as we unravel the story and um, the ways in which it arguments the events that are happening quote-unquote on screen so just keep that in mind you know it's hard with words to describe what a book is like but just keep in mind that whatever I'm describing is described in this very um, stolid and, and um, stripped-down way so the story is about a man and his daughter we don't get their names at any point is hinted, or more than hinted, is basically told that the names don't matter, I right? um, that, that's Their personalities are not what's important here. And they live in this woodland, mountainous sort of area. And they have to subsist on nature, right? Humanity has been forgotten and collapsed. They come from somewhere else, although they've been living there for ever since the daughter can remember the story starts when she's like four or five literally when she becomes like you know self-conscious um and they have to hunt and survive winters and fish and and make their own um their own equipment and that's one of the first things you'll notice about this book when reading it Krivak did serious amounts of research or, or maybe he's um an outdoorsman right but he's very knowledgeable in what he's talking about there's all sorts of like you know rituals and processes for making a bow i mean i'm a i'm a city boy right like how do you make a bow and he goes into this detail oh you need this kind of stone to sand down the wood and you need this kind of wood to make a good bow and um you use sinew from a deer you hunted to make the string Um, and he really goes into details which is actually great i expected it to be boring but because of that stripped down style it's very to the point it gives you insight into really how much we've forgotten, right? Or or this way of interacting with the world where everything has its use. So, you know, there's this terrible cliche, which is also racist. Um, You know, the Native American, take Red Dead Redemption 2, right? There's a scene where you hunt a buffalo and then you get the super cliche and um, terrible speech by the Native American character about using the whole buffalo. Of course, this is these are real things, right? Like Native Americans lived in um, sort of a deeper or more um, closely knitted relationship with nature, right? And they had to make use of all these parts. But it's often mystified and glorified in Western culture to complete this uh, figure of the noble savage. And here, because he decontextualized it, and it's not about Native Americans, it's just about you know people surviving in the wilderness. He really shows how this some um, using the whole buffalo, so-called, is Essential to life like you can't waste anything because you don't have excess. you're living on um, What you what you make and what you hunt and if you have windfall Like a good fishing day you use it to survive the winter so As we're getting to know these characters there's also a big part of um, Storytelling inside the book So the father tells the daughter um, stories all the time and the story is about animals, you know, and obviously in these stories the animals can speak and it's about the wise bear and the crafty um, snake and all sorts of like really mythological and toporific stuff like that. Um, and he also tells her stories about her mother who died and is buried on the mountain below which they live. And a lot of it is her coming, you know, coming to age under this shadow of a memory. She, she doesn't really remember her mother but she kind of does, you know, a presence um, and she sees it in, in the father. And they hike up to the grave, and there's all, all these foreshadowings and ideas about death, and I'm not gonna spoil the ending, but you, you can see where this is going. And then the book takes a turn, like the, the main pivot in the middle of the book is, they have to make a journey to the ocean, um, and they do that to get salt. So that's another thing you don't think about, right? For us, salt is like such a common commodity, which, of course, if you do the if you do the reading, it's a terribly bloody and violent commodity. It has roots in colonialism and imperialism and extractivism, and still does to this day. Um, but for us, it's just such a mundane thing. For them, it's like a whole thing. You have to walk like three months to the ocean, like literally three months. They have to leave in um, in early summer so they can make it back by the time winter hits, um, and it's it's a whole thing. And along the way, they encounter. They find like ruins of the last um, era, ruins of, of a city, and the father gets bitten by an animal. And that's the last story bit um, I'm going to uh, tell because uh, after that, there's a really cool twist. Um, actually, maybe we'll get into it, we'll see. Um, so he gets bitten, and the other point that Krivak makes here is that's actually super dangerous. Again, for us, if we get cut on like a rusty knife or um, we walk and we bruise our knee or we get bitten by an animal, we have antibiotics and vaccinations and modern medicine to make those things, you know, a memory, a scar, a story you tell at parties. But getting bitten by an animal when you don't have antiseptics is actually a good way to die, right? Like a lot of their um, hygiene is actually built around making their bite infectious and bacterious and dangerous um and that's what happens um the father gets infected and then the daughter has to start to fend for themselves and use all this knowledge that he has taught her i won't get into the twist because it spoils too much but that's kind of like the zenith of the book that's where the drama really kicks in and the conflict like reaches this fever fever pitch so why are we talking about this um and what does it have to do with no exit so first of all, it's just a great book. It's really well written. The story is incredible. It will grip you in its vice. It is incredibly sad and poignant and tragic and hopeful and um, depressing and beautiful. Um, but also the combination between nature, will nature, you know, I'm sorry for the cliche, but nature is like the third character, right? The animals and the climate and forests and weather and all that stuff. Um, the combination of that, together with the sparse language, creates a few really interesting things that I want to shine a light on without spoiling the rest of the story. And I, I really insist on that because I really want you to read this book, and I want you to experience some of the twists that he takes there um, for yourself. So, first thing that this sparse language does in combination with the nature theme is that, and this is the obvious one, like the aesthetic level of this um Maneuver is that it lends the story a sense of urgency, right? That paints these challenges in in really stark colors. Because sometimes that's something that authors miss, and you know, um, little old me telling authors how to write. Um, I'm not I'm not like a master or, or anything, but as a reader, it's often well, you know, challenges and drama and conflict are described with the most detail. Makes sense. That that's what people came here for. To you know, there's no drama, there's no story without conflict, so um, let's focus in on the conflict. But the cliche of less is more often holds true for these cases. Conflict in life, like where things come to a head, is often glimpsed in these, like, you know, snapshots split-second decisions, even if it's not, you know, like fucking dodging a bullet, just making a big call in your life. You build up to it for four months, and that's where most of the thinking and the agonizing happens. But in the moment, you just make the decision. And when, when, you know, um, a a conflict moment gets described over 10 pages, it sometimes loses the edge. But here, because of that really accurate, really sparse and stripped-down language, it just hits you. All of these decisions to go... Um, Through the passes and not on the river or to hunt this animal or not that animal to hide from the storm or to make it back home to find something to eat. How to treat a wound. These all happen so fast that they really, you know, it really pummels the um, not brutality because it's not a brutal book, but the, um, you know, split second lightning nature of these decisions. Okay, so that's the aesthetic level. It works well, it makes for a good book, but I want to dive deeper. The second thing that this sparse language um, achieves is to actually amplify that economy of surviving, right? So there's the economy of surviving with nature. We talked about that, you know, using the whole buffalo. And what Krivak is doing is saying actually um, language and the way that we use it also plays a part in this economy of surviving, Something about the father's loneliness right and the daughter's not innocence but her lack of understanding of the world that she lost leads them to this really rigid economy of worlds. They don't waste time you know there's no part in the book where they talk about philosophy, right even things like death and morality are handled with this cold not cold because it's from a place of love and, and attention right but this very objective and distant um, sort of perspective, where things die, and the question is not why do they die and where do they go, but how can they still be of use? There's this really good part where a certain character, I I don't want to spoil again, a certain character tells the daughter that um, even though things are dead, the forest remembers, because the forest lives on, for thousands of years and it has its own language and it tells the stories of those things that have died. And it is because they have died and because they have lived that the forest has something to tell. So it's not that the story simply prolongs the life of those things, but they are actually necessary. And the, their death and the end of the cycle is necessary so that the stories can be told. And on a, on a more um, grounded level, there's a deep love between the father and the daughter, like really, really deep love. They, they both, you know, they live for each other, um, but it is not articulated. It is not expanded upon. Um, it is not, um, you know, elaborated into this place of a magnificent, overflowing, accompanied by trumpets sort of love. It's a love that is more, you know, um, firm, and underlying, and structural. And it's really touching to see Krivak, you know, handle this sort of relationship. Whereas other authors would, again, um, furbish and describe this sort of love because it is, the, it is the central force of the book. Krivak leaves more unsaid and leaves us to feel this love, right? To feel this, um, To feel this pulsing power. That is something that cannot really be articulated. Um, You know, I'm reminded of this Ulver lyric from the previous, um, not previous, the recent album. Uh, You know, God's in heaven and we are here, so let your words be few, right? And that kind of rings out um, through this book. Like, this is what we've been given, this is the life that we have. It is hard, in their case, very hard, like they're constantly staring down death by a blizzard or a roaming animal or whatever, so there's no need to talk, um, and there's, there's power lost in the speaking of words, which is a really interesting stance for a book, right? And also a book about storytelling, which leads me to the third point, because this book is not about storytelling or survival or love even, even though those things are explored and are very much present in this book and and drive the main drama. This book is mostly about how much deeper nature goes than human language and human understanding. And this ties into a really interesting concept of the re-enchantment of the world. So let's unravel this concept, and then once we've unraveled it, let's bring it back to Krivak and explore whether he is actually doing a reenchantment or doing something a bit different. S- spoiler, it's a bit different. So what is the reenchantment of the world? Well, it, it begins with the disenchantment of the world, and that's the idea that in the 16th and 17th century, and actually a bit earlier than that, but that's like the accepted timeline, with the rise of not just science, but also economy as a trade, Um, sorry, economy is a profession, trade is a profession, um, and stuff like physiocracy, the idea that the state has natural resources that need to be optimized. This perception, this all led to this perception of the world as something to be divided, understood, um, given meaning, and catalogued. So that we can do things like, know ship things all across the planet like literally from london to china or we can do things like ask how much bushels how many bushels of wheat should this county of languedoc in france um, have to produce right and how can we make it times five times fifty times a hundred alongside you know more theoretical questions like gravity mathematics um, circumventing the globe and and finding new lands and all that stuff, all these things were part of the same intellectual um, movement and idea that, pardon the pardon the term, trickled down to the economy and the industry and the, the cult culture and um, the art and and so on. So, one of the prevalent theories inside historical research, specifically intellectual historical research, you can agree with it and disagree with it, intellectual history has a lot of problems, but it's a useful device um, for our use, is that this disenchanted the world. Right, The world before that was this very awe-inspiring, mysterious location. I think that's very hard for us to understand. Like, to understand the idea that huge parts of Europe, like way vaster than what we can imagine, were actually forested. All these, like if you go through Germany and you're driving on an autobahn and just drive for hours and you see hills and fields and plains, those in many places weren't hills and fields and plains. They were forested. Not to mention England, right, where the whole middle swath, like the spine of the British islands, was forested. Um, And this is also true for other places like Turkey and the Middle East and the Far East as well. Like there were huge deforestation campaigns in Central Asia and in the 19th and 20th century. Actually, in those deforestation campaigns, much of the Cultural Revolution was fought. Um, so, when this new I- ideas of cataloging and understanding the world came, they brought with them a few things. One, they brought physical change to the world, right? lands that used to lie fallow or be um, treated as commons were suddenly enclosed by nobles and cities and um, trading companies and a bunch of other institutions so that cattle can be grown there because it's just dead land for them. Oh, it's cool that it, like, stone circles and your family's been here for, like, five million generations. We don't give a shit. Like, how much money, how much cattle can this land make us, right? That's one, this has ties with the origins of capitalism, this has all been very well researched. Second thing is, is that this, the answer of here be dragons, which is what they put on maps when they didn't know what was there, is no longer acceptable. No, no, what actually is there? Go there and tell me what is there. And the third thing is that when you actually encounter something, You can't just look at a weird animal and say oh what a weird animal that's a creature of the gods or a spirit or whatever no taxonomize it for me what is its relations to other animals what is its you know place in this great chain of being which is a very common um, term that started to be used in the 16th century Shakespeare uses it a lot but also scientists and intellectuals from all sorts of um, uh, walks of, of the society this is all linked In one divine, still divine, one divine plan that makes sense. The pieces fit, right? As Thule might say. Um, So this, this perception and these changes made the world less enchanted. Now, if you bring in Marx's idea of alienating labor, like alienating ourselves from the results of labor, you put those two together, you quickly get our present world, right? We slowly grow apart from the locality of things, right? That spirit that haunts the moors, or that stone that we have always worshipped, or rituals like May Queen rituals, for example. And we move towards a, a world that fits together, that makes sense. This moor can't be haunted because there are 500 other moors all across the planet and we've documented them and none of them are haunted so what are you talking about and this stone circle is just a stone and just a structure that your ancestors built but it's not really unique here's another 1500 of them Um, and lastly what use can we make of these things? How can we use them to make money, to make power, um, to make goods? So. This disenchantment of the world, and there's like a chicken and egg situation here, also enabled the world to be changed. We already spoke about that, right? There's a forest, but I want to clear it, because I want to plant more wheat, or sugar, or indigo, or coffee, or whatever. I don't care that, like, this is where you baptize your children, or this is where the gods talk to you. I want it removed. And... There's no more awe to stop me from removing it. If I worship these woods, and if they've always been worshipped, I won't take an axe to them because there are curses, or because I respect it too much, or it's a part of my world. It's obvious that the forest will be there because the forest has always been there. Suddenly, when I strip away all of that, and I disenchant the forest, and I'm sorry that I'm harping on that example, it's just the simplest one, we can do it with whatever you want, like damming a river, I, like river gods were really important river spirits and just not even spirits and gods just the belief in rivers and the use as you know for healing properties and travel suddenly we can say hey damn this river because I need this water to grow fish in or to um, feed to my sugar plantations right so I disenchant the world so that I can bend it where does that lead us? you guessed it that leads us to climate change because that enables the at scale destruction and extraction that leads to climate change that enables strip mining and fracking and cutting down rainforests and poisoning waters and and lakes because those things are no longer enchanted of course i'm being simplistic it's also enabled by modes of production and material conditions and colonialism and a million other things but this disenchantment plays a part in it so we can see the re-enchantment as a viable course of resistance to these powers and then again this is not something that i'm inventing this has been you know part of the discourse for the last um two decades or even more this idea that if we go back to folklore if you go back to a magical thinking about our environs and it doesn't have to be true because truth is not the correct question when you talk about mythology and folklore if we do all those things we have the potential to re-enchant nature and by re-enchanting it we can protect it what if we could start a new literary movement where all the people across the planet or across a country to be more humble were suddenly in love with trees again not just as something pretty but as messengers of the gods or as beacons towards the afterlife or just as a healing um, object couldn't we then rally them to protect them from logging and um you know toxic spills and all that stuff at least that's how the point goes on good days where i'm feeling optimistic um i feel optimistic about that as well and that sounds like a great idea uh, a lot because it you know coincides with my interests, but also because i believe it has potential um for real change but on my bad days it all sounds very fantastical and removed from the actual needs of you know indigenous people other minorities oppressed people and and, and our planet It doesn't need to be re-enchanted, it needs to be, you know, protected for material means. The answer is somewhere in between, right? It's a useful tool, it's a useful perspective. So let's bring it back to Krivak. Is that what Krivak is doing? On one hand, kinda. There's this whole idea about the forest telling the stories, the forest being alive, almost like it reminds me of the Ents in Tolkien's um, Legendarium. He even says that to listen to a discussion of the Ents would take generations because they talk so slow we all remember those scenes from the books and the movies where the ants are rumbling along and the hobbits ha- don't have patience to listen so yeah the trees are alive and the animals are alive and sentient again not, no spoilers but even in the story that the father is telling you know the, the bear is talking and he takes actions and, and so on and more than that like the top of the mountain the summit where the mother is buried is sacred and enchanted it has this um sense of place and feeling and importance to it. It's not just a summit. It is intrinsically tied to the inner world of these characters. But on the other hand, Krivak is going for something much deeper here and much more unintelligible and therefore closer to how nature quote-unquote really is. What he's saying is this re enchantment is still understanding nature through human perspectives right? It is through human actions, human interactions, and human beliefs that we come to conceptualize of this piece of nature as important. Whereas, nature with with Krivak is important because it is. It just is. Storms, and the weather, and forests, and animals just are. They are not concerned with these ideas of you know stories and meaning and mythology, they don't have desires like an enchanted perspective of the world would assign them, and most of all, they are not parsable to humans. Whether you try to parse nature with science, or whether you try to parse nature with magic or folklore or enchantment, you are still attempting to parse something which is not parsable, because it doesn't contain information, or at least information, that humans can interpret into patterns. You look at a mountain, it's a mountain. Sure, you can measure it and understand its composition, stuff like that, but that doesn't have anything to do with its conception as a mountain, or with its importance to you, or with its um, the role that it plays in your life. It doesn't matter if you understand it, whether you understand it through chemical analysis or through um, the story that your grandmother told you about the spirit that lives at the top. It will still be a mountain and there will still be an avalanche that will kill you or bounty that will allow you to live and this is accomplished through again krivak's use of language to bring us you know full circle full circle here um this the sparseness of language signals to you that this story doesn't matter the stories that the father is telling the daughter don't matter i mean they're super important and they have so much love and empathy in them but they don't come close to actually grabbing nature by the throat. And only when the daughter undergoes the harshness of the elements herself and lets go of the story, lets go of of symbolism, which happens at the end of the book, and again, I I won't spoil too much, does she actually merge with nature, become one with nature. And that also speaks to our previous solo episode with Jeff Noon and this idea of hybridity. Part of hybridity is like letting go of making the other be understood in your terms, because then that's not hybridity, that is subjugation. You're taking the other and you are folding them into your own conceptualization of their life and your life. Instead, what you need to do is to break down your perspective, to break down those attempts to pass the other, and to break down this this, um, attempt to put something in a box which can't be put in a box. Which brings you back to no exit. No exit, when we're talking about climate change, means understanding that these processes that we are tinkering with and changing are inherently unintelligible to us. The reason that we can't predict anything is that we don't understand anything. Not because we need to do more research, but because some of this is simply beyond our grasp. How these cycles work, how they move, how they change. Is that to say that you should throw away all the science and we should stop listening to climate scientists? Hell no, I am extremely pro science and pro uh, climate science and IPCC and all that stuff. But we should also have a part of us that doesn't exit from the catastrophe by reading about it in scientific articles. And that's something that I did for a year. I sat there and I just read articles. I doom scrolled through scientific um, literature Because maybe if I read another article, maybe if I read another line, maybe if I read another term and looked at another graph, I would understand. I would come to terms with what is happening. I would come to terms with the fact that in my lifetime, most biomes on the planet will collapse. I will come to terms with the fact that water is about to become a scarce resource on this planet. I would come to terms with the fact that huge swaths of of the planet are on fire. But I can't. And I won't. And trying to come to terms with it, trying to put it in this pill that I can swallow, is an exit, right? It is not staying with the trouble to evoke Donna Haraway from last episode. It is not looking the problem in its face. And why is that important? Because when we look away from the problem, when we exit, even if we exit through science and through intellectual endeavors and through, quote unquote, correct ways to look at the problem, we can cause a lot of harm. Because that's the kind of thinking that leads scientists, the good guys, to talk about um, geoengineering. And they're talking about it. If you think it's just a headline, you know, scientists want to dim the sun or whatever, that's just the stuff that goes to the press. They are actually talking about geoengineering on a massive scale. And I'm not the only person that's worried about this. This is not like tinfoil, harp machine or whatever. They're talking about scientific measures to affect the climate of the Earth to fix, quote-unquote, climate change. And they can conceptualize that because they believe they have understood, right? They have grasped the problem. They have minimized it into a box, and now they can operate on that box. And that is extremely, extremely dangerous. There's a lot of literature out there about the dangers of it. It's not just me sitting in a room and ranting. It is a genuine concern. And it comes from this well-intended, well-intentioned, desire to solve nature, to solve something that is unsolvable. And Andrew Krivak's The Bell helps us, you know, come to a relationship with nature from a place of not understanding, not conceptualizing, not minimizing, but a kind of awe, a kind of acceptance, a kind of come what may and I shall do my best with it, that we desperately desperately need when we're talking about surviving another day when we talk about coming to terms with this disaster not as an actor not as someone who can change things but as someone who needs to survive someone who needs to stay sane in their life so with that i want to end um with a piece of music and there really wasn't a lot of options for me as far as genres but to go with some sort of atmospheric, you know, pagan or um, post-black metal. Um, And that's what I did. I'm going to play a convocation of spirits of the upcoming Amiensus album, Ab Reaction. If you're not familiar with them, Amiensus are a black metal band from Minnesota, and they've been making really, really, really excellent atmospheric and progressive black metal for... A long time now. They've collaborated with Oak Pantheon, which are one of my favorite bands of this genre. That's how I found Amiensis. Um, And now they're about to release Ab Reaction, which I feel is a huge step up in quality and ambition as far as their music goes. It's just an excellent, excellent album. And A Convocation of Spirits really drives a lot of those points home. How they meld the abrasiveness of black metal with the more atmospheric elements to maybe create some of those emotions that I try to get across um, during this episode. So as always, thank you so much for listening. Um, Enjoy!